Good evening. It is so good to be together on the Lord's Day. If you're visiting with us tonight, we are glad that you are here. It has been a great Lord's Day. Anytime we can be together with God's people and worship, that is good. Tonight, we're going to do questions and answers. I've got a lot of questions right now, something like 30 questions. I'm going to shoot to cover 10 or 12 tonight. We'll watch the time and see how it goes. So here we go. Question number one. According to the Bible, is there such a thing as guilt by association? If so, if one is a member of a political party, a civic club, or any other organization that teaches, promotes, encourages, and supports anti-biblical activities such as same-sex marriage and the killing of babies, is one guilty of these activities as a result of being a member only and not directly participating in such activities. In other words, is the driver of the getaway car as guilty as the robber? Uh, first, let me say this. I don't believe that the driver of the getaway car is only guilty by association. I think he, is, uh, he helped facilitate that crime. Without the getaway, the crime would not have taken place. So I, I wouldn't equate that part. But anyway, uh, several things I think are worth mentioning here. First. The Bible warns that association can bring guilt. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived. Evil associations corrupt good morals. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or seat in the, sit in the seat of the scornful. And so the Bible says, Be careful with whom you spend your time because those associations could make you guilty. We also have to concern ourselves with the way things look. That is, I could have guilt because of the appearance of something. Let me give you some examples of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 10, the Bible talks about meat that is offered to idols, and it says this, if anyone sees you eating this meat, it could be a stumbling block for them. Now, Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing but a false deity. It is nothing. And so if you're eating this meat that was offered to an idol, in your mind, you just know that you bought some inexpensive meat. But someone else might see you doing that. And the fact that they saw you, it could hurt your influence. And so you have to think about guilt because of the appearance that you present. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 discusses in the city of Corinth, women not wearing their veils... And in that particular city, to not wear your veil would communicate rebellion, rebelliousness. And so because of the way it looked, they weren't supposed to do this. They didn't want to send that message. You know, I have gone at times, and uh, Sherry and I would get uh, a to-go order from Olive Garden. And I would go in there, and they would say, you've got to go up to the bar to order and get your, uh, your food. And I would say, would you mind going up there? I don't really want someone to see me standing there at the bar making an order. Not that I was going to order alcohol. I just was concerned about the appearance. I didn't want someone to see me standing at the bar. You know, the preacher, I saw him at the bar at uh, Olive Garden. And so we have to worry about how associations will affect us. We have to worry about the appearance that they give. Sometimes people go to 1 Thessalonians 5.22 where the Bible says, avoid the appearance of evil. Um, I don't think that's what that means. That passage, the word appearance, is from a Greek word that literally means 
every form of evil. The ESV translates it that way, avoid all forms or all types of evil. And so I think that's a misuse of that uh, passage. Uh, but to, to get to the question, could a political party or a civic club, uh, could it make you guilty by association? Well, there is no such thing as a perfect political party. I think all of them do some things that are ungodly. Most companies do some things that are ungodly. Most every government in the world is going to do something that is ungodly. So you're going to associate yourself even in some indirect way in all of these areas. And so a Christian needs to ask himself some questions. A Christian needs to ask himself, am I directly supporting evil or am I associating myself with evil in a way that's hurting my influence? Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let me give you two situations. A Christian might work at a government office that provides business licenses to include liquor stores. That is, people come in and buy their business license, and people that have a liquor store would come in and buy their business license. Compare that to a person who works at the counter of a liquor store. You see a difference in those two things? One of them is indirectly doing this, but no one's going to get the impression, the man that is selling licenses at the government office, they're not going to think he supports liquor because of that. But you see, the other man is directly supporting this, and he's going to hurt his influence. And so you've got to look at the degree and how close you are to this and how much it hurts your influence. And so there's a lot of judgment that comes into some of these things. One is very clear. The other is more removed. It's when you get closer in the center, sometimes it becomes a, a more difficult question. Now, when it comes to the political party question, uh, again, there is no perfect political party but every person needs to t stop and ask themselves, what is the platform of my political party? What are we known for? Are we known for supporting wickedness? Do, where do we stand on key issues, moral issues specifically, such as homosexuality and abortion? Because we have a very limited number of parties, I need to ask myself this question, and then I need to ask myself, is there a better one that does not support these wicked things, and then make the determination because a Christian does not, he wants to be as far removed as he can from supporting these wicked things. All right, next question. Is it wrong to end a prayer without saying, in Jesus' name? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, somebody says then, you know, where do we get the idea that we have to say, in Jesus' name, at the end of the prayer? I think there are several passages that have planted that thought in our head. John 14 and verse 13, Jesus said, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. John 16, 26, And in that day you shall ask in my name, Jesus said. That does not mean that there is a verbal formula that if I don't say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer that somehow that invalidates the prayer that that makes it a legitimate prayer because I said those magic words. I know nothing in the Bible that states that we have to say in Jesus' name. Then what does it mean? You know, Colossians 3 and verse 17 says, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. That doesn't mean that I walk around all the time saying, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord, I'm doing that in the name of the Lord, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. It means that we do it by the authority of the Lord. It's the same thing about saying a prayer in Jesus' name. We are praying through Jesus, 
and we are praying by His authority in His name. You know, likewise, we baptize in Jesus' name or in the name of the Lord. That does not mean that a baptism is invalid if I don't say the magic words that I baptize you in the name of Jesus. It means that we do it by the authority of Jesus. We've used the old illustration in the Lord's church where we say, stop in the name of the law. A policeman might say, stop in the name of the law. What he means is, by the authority of the law, I'm saying that you have to stop. Now, I think it's a good thing that we say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer because we want people to understand. It is by the authority of Jesus and through Jesus that we pray. But if you don't say it, let's say that you and your private prayer life, you get to the end and you say, thank you, Lord, amen. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You understand that you did that by the authority of Jesus. Good question. Number three. When a Christian is on their deathbed in their final moments, are angels present waiting? Could an angel be standing beside us that we don't see? Um, you know, Luke chapter 16 describes for us the death of Lazarus, the righteous man who was a beggar. And the Bible describes that when he dies, that angels were waiting to escort him to paradise, to Abraham's bosom. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now somebody might say, Don, that's describing evil, wicked things. What are you talking about? The indication of that verse is there is a spiritual realm that is out there that is beyond our ability to see. And that is true. In the realm of the work of Satan, there's a spiritual realm in which Satan is working, but I can't see it. There is likewise a spiritual realm in which God is working that I cannot see it. And since the Bible describes for us angels waiting to escort Lazarus, I would say, uh, is it unreasonable to think that the angels are there waiting, knowing that this person's about to pass away? I don't see any reason to think anything other than that. Maybe the angels are standing there waiting for that moment, what I know for a fact is, when I die, if I'm faithful, those angels are going to be there to escort me to paradise. Question number four. Why does the NIV and the ESV leave out Acts 8.37? Why does the NIV and the ESV leave out Acts 8.37? Acts 8.37 says this. This is Philip speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch. He said, if you believe with all of your heart... You may. That is, the eunuch asked him, See, here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And he said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Some versions omit this. Acts 8, 37. The NIV omits this. The ESV, the RSV, and several others. And then some include it. The King James and the New King James include it. The question is, why do some omit it and some include it? And the short answer is, uh, it's based on manuscript evidence. It's based on which manuscripts they have used to translate uh, that particular version of the Bible. Uh, it is argued by those who have translated the NIV and the ESV that they will say the oldest and the best manuscripts omit this. 
Uh, I would debate them when they say the best manuscripts, but that is their contention. And so they believe, based on the manuscript evidence, they say we have manuscripts that are older than the ones that are used for the King James, which we call the majority text. They say there's some older ones, and they really mean two or three. But they say these older ones have omitted this, therefore we have left it out. I think it's interesting, if you go back and look at some of the writings of early Christians, such as Irenaeus. Irenaeus is a man who lived roughly a hundred years after the, the writing of the book of Acts. So he's very close to New Testament times. But Irenaeus quotes Acts 8.37, and he mentions it as belonging in the Bible. And so the writings of Irenaeus goes back even further than what they call their oldest and best manuscripts. So I say that to say I believe that it does belong in the Bible, and I think you can make a very strong case for it. But the reason some omit it is because of the manuscript evidence. Number five, what do Jews do about their sins today? You know, that is a very good question. Jews have rejected the Messiah. Hebrews 10.26 says that if you reject Christ, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. And so what do Jews do about their sins? And the real answer is nothing. They're, they're not doing anything about their sins. They are lost in their sins. I think the question, though, is this. What do they think they're doing about their sins? Because modern-day Jews have not only rejected Christ, they've also rejected animal sacrifices. Now, according to the Old Testament law, they would offer a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice for their sin. They don't do that anymore, so the question is, what are they doing now? I didn't really know, so I looked this up on the internet, and what it said they do is they pray. They pray for the forgiveness of their sins. In fact, here's the exact quote. It says, sacrifice was centralized in the temple at Jerusalem. When the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans, sacrifice was no longer possible, so prayer replaced sacrifice. Who decided that prayer replaced sacrifice? God didn't decide that. And then it stated this, prayer and service, repentance, and acts of loving kindness take the place of the old system of temple sacrifice. So what they said is, we don't sacrifice anymore. We have decided that now if we can um, pray and we are kind and we ask for forgiveness, that that works instead. But what's interesting is they have no blood sacrifice. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so Jews today are participating in a system that has no blood. There is no remission of sins. So what are they doing about their sins? Nothing according to the New Testament. And as a matter of fact, nothing according to the Old Testament. They've created a system for which there's no authority, old or new. Next question. Number six. Is it wrong not to answer the door when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons come knocking? If it is, we're probably all in trouble because um, we've probably all done that. Uh, I don't think it's wrong. I think this is a judgment call. Uh, you know, Second John verse 9 says that we're not to receive a false teacher into our house or bid him Godspeed. I don't think that means you can't bring him into your house if you're trying to teach him.
but it does suggest that some restraint can be exercised here. Uh, maybe a person doesn't feel like they are adequately prepared to handle a Mormon. And so maybe they think they would do more harm than good. I think that's all right under those circumstances not to study with them. Maybe the person doesn't have uh, time at that moment to do it. Uh, I would point this out, though. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are not coming to your house seeking the truth. They are not looking for you to teach them. As a matter of fact, they are usually quite set against it. I have studied with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness several times over the years, and I've never gotten anywhere. A few times when I started to get somewhere, we would go a week or two or three and start to make progress. You know what would happen the next week? They would send it a different group. I think if you start to make progress, they understand that, and their system is set up where they don't want you converting their people, and so they would change them. Now, I would offer this. A Christian who avoids all evangelism, there is a problem with that. And we're not saying that you're ever justified not to do evangelism. And we're also not saying that you can just take entire blocks of people and say, I won't study with, with this person. Um, it, it, to, so to say, I'll never study with a Mormon, that would be a wrong thing to do. But uh, whether you answer the door at a particular time, I think that's a matter of judgment and circumstance. A, uh, a friend of mine, a preacher friend of mine, told me that he was eating in a restaurant and he saw some Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, they were out canvassing the neighborhood and they had stopped to eat. And he got to thinking, you know, they are walking around trying to uh, convert people to their false religion. And so he said he walked over to them and said, would you come and study with me after you eat lunch? And uh, he said he did that because he just thought he'd keep them occupied for a while so they wouldn't go teach other people. And um, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think an easy solution might be this. If you've got some tracks or some DVDs that you can keep in your house, and when they come, you can try to hand them that. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses oftentimes will not take that. Technically, they are not allowed to take that. But um, that's one approach you could take. Number seven. We have a song that says... Jesus shed no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Is that correct to sing? Is it true that Jesus shed no tears for his own grief? Uh, the song that this question is about is the song, I Stand Amazed in the Presence. And the second verse of that song says this, For me it was in the garden he prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. The question is, is that a proper thing to sing? I don't really believe it's accurate. Matthew 26 and verse 39 describes the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says about Jesus, he went a little further, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus was dreading this. Jesus did not want to endure this, but he said, I will do the Father's will. Now listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, talking about Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard in that he feared. 
Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. What does that mean? Jesus is wailing. He is crying to the Father. He did not want to suffer these things. He did not want to endure these things. He said, please let this pass, if possible, but not my will, but your will be done. So to say that he had no tears for his own grief, I don't think that's an accurate statement based on what I read in the Bible. Uh, I guess it's uh, some poetic license, but I don't think it accurate, accurate, accurately reflects Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Number eight, should a Christian base his giving on his take-home pay or on his gross pay? If it is his gross pay, what if taxes skyrocket and take-home pay plummets? Should some type of adjustment be made in one's giving? This is not a question to try to shortchange God in any way, but to be certain that I am giving in a manner that is pleasing to Him. This is a really good question, and I appreciate a person who would ask this because the person is saying, I want to be sure that I give in the right way. And if the Lord had specified a percentage, it would make it easier to answer some questions like this. But the New Testament doesn't say give a percentage of what you've made. What the New Testament says is that we are to give as we have been prospered. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So the Lord said, give as you have prospered. And so what I do is I look at my life and I may say, well, I brought home this much in my paycheck this week and I made this much interest on my CD account, and I got back a tax return, and my employer pays my health insurance, and so uh, that relieves me of having to pay this, and so forth and so on. I'm going to look at all the ways in which I have prospered, and then I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to say, I can give this much to the church. I can give this much to the church. To me, here's the answer to the question. It's 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. I think that sometimes we get this punch card mentality, and we want to make sure that we are doing the minimum requirements, and we end up missing the point. You know, sometimes I've heard people argue over whether they should give extra when they get their tax refund. Because what they've said is, well, I've already given based on that money once, and so I get the refund. Should I really give again? I think we missed the point. The point is, when I look at my blessings, how have I prospered? What can I do? What can I afford to do for the Lord's church? Not uh, legally have I met the requirement of 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, but when I look at my rich blessings that I have, what can I do? Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. It's not grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. And so what matters and what matters is that all the money belongs to God and we just need to use it wisely. We need to give sacrificially. Whatever we do, we need to be examining our lives and I should be asking myself, am I wanting? Am I doing what I can? And just be sure I'm not getting into the uh, habit of thinking, all right, this is the minimum God's required. I want to be sure that I've done that. I'm not suggesting the person who asked this um, is thinking that way. In fact, 
They seem to be thinking the opposite way. But um, I need to be sure it is a generous heart who is doing what I can to please God. Question number nine. This is a very interesting question. Is doing a fake laugh when you're talking to somebody wrong? That is, if someone says something that I think, that they think is funny, and I do a fake laugh for the sake of the conversation, is that wrong? I hope not, or no one would ever laugh at my jokes. <laughs> um, now, was that real or was that fake? I have to ask. Um, I would ask this question. If you were unhappy and you pass a friend in the hall and you smile at them, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. You're not trying to deceive them. You're just trying to be polite. You're not trying to trick them into thinking that you're happy. You're just extending common, common courtesy. And I think it's the same sort of thing here. I'm not trying to be deceptive. I'm just trying to be courteous. I'm just trying to be kind. In fact, I've always called that a courtesy laugh, a CL, a courtesy laugh. And you know, oftentimes you can tell if a person genuinely thinks that it's funny or if they're just being kind. And uh, you know, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 says that we should let our speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Grace is unmerited favor. I would say a courtesy laugh would fall into the category of grace. It might be unmerited, but I'm being polite to you. Uh, you know, it also might be worth mentioning here, sometimes somebody, uh, somebody, a Christian, maybe not a Christian, they will say something in poor taste, maybe something immoral. They'll make an inappropriate joke. They'll say some sort of a crass remark. And by not laughing, that can be a powerful rebuke, right? They say something they think is going to be funny, but it's tasteless, and you just look at them. You don't give them a courtesy laugh. Sometimes that can send the point. I remember years ago, I said something that was a little bit distasteful, trying to be funny, to my father-in-law, and he looked at me, and he did not crack a smile. And I thought, ooh, boy, he just stung me. He rebuked me, and I remembered that. That stuck with me. So that sort of thing can be powerful. Here is number 10. We might get further than I thought tonight. All right. Obviously, reckless or self-destructive behavior is wrong, but some have a high thrill threshold, and they ride motorcycles or jump out of planes. Ecclesiastes 11, 9, and 10, God knows a young person will enjoy the vigor of youth, perhaps in ways that us older folks may consider foolish. But that one must also remember to always do what is right. So what is right? I think this is the question. Is there a line between risky behavior for fun and what is sinful? That is, is doing something super risky like skydiving, would that be a sinful thing? I think that's what the question is. Um, I don't know if I would say that it's sinful if a person wants to go bungee jumping or if they want to go skydiving or something like that. Um, I would say if you want to go ride a four-wheeler, now that would be a mistake. I wouldn't recommend that. But um, I probably wouldn't say bungee jumping or skydiving is uh, sinful, but I would say it might be foolish. You know, it's kind of like I pray to God and say, Please give me safety. Please provide for me and care for me. And then I go do things that are exceedingly dangerous. I don't know. The next question is, who gets to decide? Who decides, well, this one crosses the line. This is too dangerous. I don't know. And so I think a lot of judgment is going to come in uh, to that question. 
Uh, I could not think of a passage that deals directly with this question. Uh, I would probably just urge a balance. Uh, think about your family. Think about the fact they need you, and protecting yourself from danger is going to help your family. Uh, one more thought. If a wife or a mother were diagnosed with cancer, is it a sin for her to choose not to take chemotherapy? I don't think we would say that it's a sin for her not to do that. But you know, many women and, and men have decided to take it because of their family. That is, they think, I don't want to go through this, but they endure that pain for their family. And I think that makes sense because they're thinking about their family. And I think that applies to this too. You're thinking about your loved ones and you make these choices uh, for their sake. Number 11. If a wife finds her husband looking at pornography, does she have grounds for a scriptural divorce? If not, if he continues to look at pornography, does she have grounds for divorce? This is a good question. I have been asked this question many times. Is viewing pornography grounds for a scriptural divorce? Matthew 19 and verse 9 says the only reason for a scriptural divorce is fornication. The word fornication is from the Greek word pornea. It means unlawful sexual intercourse. Viewing pornography is not unlawful sexual intercourse. And so it does not constitute grounds for a divorce. Now, I think the reason this oftentimes come up, comes up, in fact, I know it is because they cite it, is Matthew 5, 28. Jesus said, but I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so they say, see, if he's lusting, if he's viewing pornography, he has committed adultery adultery in his heart. Adultery is a form of fornication, and therefore they have grounds uh, for divorce. But you see, committing a sin in your heart is not the same as actually committing it. Now, the spiritual consequences will be the same, but the physical consequences are not the same. Let me illustrate this. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15 says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so if you hate your brother in your heart, spiritually speaking, you are a murderer. But you're not going to go to jail for that. You're not going to get the death penalty for that. Why? Because though the spiritual consequences of sin will make you lose your soul, he says no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, but the physical consequences are going to be different. That is, they're not going to take you to prison because you hate in your heart. In a similar sense, looking at pornography is adultery of the heart, but it is not the same as the actual physical act of adultery. Now, it might lead to it. A person might look at pornography so much that it stirs up lust in his heart and it might lead him to go and commit adultery. Uh, the second part of this question says, if the man is caught and he just keeps looking at pornography, does it give the woman scriptural grounds to divorce her husband? Uh, no. If, if, if uh, doing it once or twice isn't grounds for divorce, doing it three or four or five times is not grounds for divorce. I know, because I've heard women say this, that when their husband views pornography, they feel like he is cheating on her. That's what it feels like. But it doesn't meet the biblical definition. And so a woman is in a very tough spot, and the man needs to get counseling, and he needs to get help. He's doing something 
that is sinful, but it's not grounds for divorce. All right, here is the last question, number 12. Did Satan think he had won when Jesus died? I don't know, because this question is asking about the heart of the devil, and it's asking me to speculate. Uh, I don't have a Bible verse, but if I were going to speculate, I would probably say, yeah, he probably did think he had won. You know, John 13 and verse 2 says that the devil put into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And so he must have thought that somehow that was going to give him the upper hand. He must have wanted this, and he must have been gratified when this happened. And so did he think he had won? Of course, if he did think that, it was very short-lived because it wasn't very long until he figured this out, and he would have realized that all things worked together for God's plan. Boy, wouldn't it be interesting if you could find out more about what went through the devil's mind as all of this was playing out? All right, thank you for those questions. I appreciate it so very much. And in three or four weeks, we will do it again, so please keep the questions coming in. I appreciate them. It could be that there's someone here tonight who needs to obey the gospel. We always extend the Lord's invitation because if you're not a Christian, there is nothing more important than that you become one. The Bible teaches to become a child of God. You need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Maybe tonight you're ready to do that. We are ready to assist you. Maybe tonight you are here and you are a member of the church and you need the prayers of your brethren on your behalf. We would be honored to go to God and do that. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come? As together we stand and sing the invitation song.